So, when you think of your most favorite person, when you think of your most favorite person, maybe they've already departed, maybe they've already passed away, but when you think of maybe the most influential person in your life, and your most favorite person, when you think of that person, different things come to mind when you think of that person, of the impact they might have had on your life. I can guarantee you, you probably don't remember much of what they said, but you definitely remember how they made you feel, right? This is a common quote by, by a, a poet and a civil rights activist, uh, Maya Angelou, the common quote of hers. You, you'll never remember what people say, but you do remember how they made you feel, right? So this is something maybe when you think of that person uh, who's had a tremendous impact on your life, when I think of that person or people in my life, like I don't remember much of their content or lessons or things like that, but I do remember how they made me feel. I, I, I do remember that tremendously uh, and the impact they had on me. One common thing about the person that you're thinking about and the person I'm thinking about is that they lived, I can almost guarantee you, they lived a life of giving. They lived a life of giving. They weren't just all about themselves, but they poured themselves out into you and poured themselves into other people. This is a common thing that we can all agree on as far as people who've had a tremendous impact on us. One common theme is that they've, they've, they've had a posture of giving of themselves in this way. They've had a posture of giving themselves in this way. And, and this is, um, even if, if you're Orthodox, not Orthodox, Christian, not Christian, you, everyone, we can all agree on this statement. The value of someone's life is correlated to how much they give. The value of someone's life is correlated to how much they give, right? Every worldview, every person would agree that this statement to be true. Go to any funeral of any tradition, everyone's always trying to pull words of how much that person gave, right? No one's saying, yeah, he had a really big 401k and, you know, we're going to miss him. No one says that, right? They're always talking about how much that person gave, not just in finances, but in, 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 in just their personality, of their time, of their energy, of their resources. They lived a life of giving. So the value of someone's life is correlated to how much they give. You get this in a funeral, right? In orthodoxy, and in many apostolic churches, not just orthodoxy specifically, many churches highlight and give tremendous honor to saints who have lived a life with Jesus and have given their life to a bigger cause, right? This is, for, for some reason, for every, for every human being, Christian or non-Christian, there's something so attractive of someone who gives of themselves. It's a virtue that's so attractive and so appealing because if we're kind of honest, it's hard. It's, it's, it's not a, a natural thing for us to give of ourselves because if we're honest, our natural reflex is me. My time, my stuff, my money, my whatever, right? It's all about me. But we find it attractive. We lean in towards someone who lives a life of giving. It's highly attractive. This is why, specifically in the Orthodox Church, we give tremendous honor to, to heroes of the faith, of saints, who didn't live a life just for themselves, but gave them themselves up to the ultimate sacrifice of their life themselves. They gave, they gave, and we look at them, we honor them, we want to emulate their virtues. So we give tremendous honor uh, of the saints because they lived a life of giving. There's someone in ancient Christianity who has the title of being the lamp of monasticism. The lamp of monasticism. Some translations will call it the light of monasticism, but I think the proper one is the lamp of monasticism. And why, oh, I'm going I'm to share the name of the person. St. Anthony, the great. St. Anthony, who is one of the founding fathers of the monastic movement for all of Christianity, 
he's given the title of being the lamp of monasticism because he was just a vessel as he gave himself to a bigger cause. A light shone in him and worked in him, but he was just the lamp that, that b b impacted so many other people even to this point. And I want to share with you one quote, and I promise you all these loose pieces are going to come together. But St. Anthony the Great says this. He says this in the 4th century. Freedom and happiness of soul. Don't you want freedom and happiness of soul? Like, regardless of where you might be right now, of who Jesus is, and put all that aside. Any person's soul wants to lean in toward the second half of the sentence. Freedom and happiness of soul. You want that. I definitely want that. Freedom and happiness of soul. Here is what this ancient Christian Orthodox writer and the father of the monks, this is what St. Anthony has to say to the rest of the city. Freedom and happiness of soul consist in genuine purity and detachment from transitory things. Freedom and happiness of soul. America, we have a different, we complete the sentence very differently, right? But freedom and happiness of soul, according to him, consist in genuine purity and detachment from transitory things. As I mentioned, our reflex is to hold on to stuff. My, my time, my thing, my whatever, right? And then we super spiritualize when I want to like, oh, I'm done with this person. This person is toxic. This person is whatever. And I let go of, of people, relationships, careers, church, you name it. I let it all go because I'm, I'm, I'm doing what's best for me. I'm putting myself as the centerpiece. So I, I prioritize myself. But St. Anthony is saying freedom and happiness of soul consist in genuine purity and detachment from things of this temporal world. You know, if things of this temporal world were really fulfilling for you and me, you and I would not have this ache in our heart. We wouldn't have this void still. Like if things of this world, if that person, if that guy, if that girl, if that career, if that finances, if that house, if that car, if all of that filled that void, if that vacation, if that really filled, if that just quenched your thirst, wouldn't you and I be content? Wouldn't you and I be sufficient? But once that vacation's over, once that person is over, there's still a void. Once I'm done scrolling, once I'm done watching that, there's still an emptiness. That just proves a point that there's something more than this transitory world and transitory things that's there to fill in that void. I mean, come on. I, I, I don't think I would be here if I was just content with everything else in this world and there was nothing, like, I, I was just sufficient with everything in this world. But I'm still hungry for something more. And I feel if we were honest with ourselves and we kind of remove all the noise and stuff and things that we think is going to give us freedom and happiness of soul, if we remove all that, there's still an ache and hunger for more. Well, as you can see at the bottom of the slide, it says soul wellness, because this is the last part of a series in which we've been looking at soul wellness. And I'm, I, I, I made it in a sarcastic way, but it's kind of true as far as when I looked at part one, we talked about why I wanted to call this series soul wellness, because wellness is such a common term that everyone loves to use to make themselves seem super, super smart, right? There's wellness advocates, there's wellness experts on and everything, right? And then there's people that even give, certi there's certified wellness advocates, certified wellness, whatever. I has, I, till this day, we're on part three of the series, I still don't know what that means, and I still don't know who determines who's wellness expert or wellness advocate, but we, you and I, it's a subconscious thing. You and I hear the word wellness, we think, oh, this has to be a good video. This has to be a good podcast. It's, it's about wellness, right? We just find it attractive just because, yeah, I want to be well. So wellness, that sounds like something that's, that, that's for me. I want to be, I want to be, uh, I need a wellness advocate in my life. We just lean in toward that. So I went to the National Wellness Institute. 
I'm not making this up, for the definition of the word wellness, right? You know, if, we're, if we're talking about wellness, right? If we want to, you, you want to be better, I want to be better in life, all right? Okay, sure, cool. But l- let me go to the experts. What's the National Wellness Institute's definition of wellness? This is their definition here. An active process through which people become aware of and make choices toward a more successful existence. It's nice. I like it, right? An active process through which people become aware, right? Everyone, everyone claims I'm, I'm self-aware, I'm self-aware, right? right? And make choices toward a more successful existence, right? You want to be successful, I want to be successful. You, you want to be well, I want to be well. It's cool. What does this mean? I have no idea. It sounds nice. Do you know why I don't know what this means? Because this is super relative. Everyone can define all these terms in their own way. That TikTok video, that podcast, that YouTube video has their own definition to this. They can take wellness and run a completely different direction. You know, this terrorist group, they have wellness. (laughs) They define it very differently, right? They want a successful existence. I'm bringing extreme examples and I'm kind of being sarcastic, but I'm making a point, right? All these terms are super relative. Right? For someone to be good or nice or, or successful or existence or self-aware, by, by what basis? Who determines w- 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 what's wellness and what's not? And this is why, out of all worldviews that are trying to find wellness this way, wellness came, the wellness expert with a capital E came down and gave a concrete, tangible definition to wellness. It's something I'm able to hold on to and, in a sacramental way. I'm able to abide in him. This is why this world, this worldview, not, not an ascending way, but a descending way in an incarnational way, now it's something I can hold on to. I can, I can grasp. There's handles for me to hold on to. Now it's not just these theoretical terms that just make me feel good and warm inside. Now it's something I can hold on to. This is why in orthodoxy, this wellness expert, we, we call him the author of life. Not in a theoretical way, not just some, you know, somebody up in the sky. No, he's a person. Another definition we give to him, the being. He is the being. If you look at Orthodox hymnology, the hymns of the church, we call him the one, capital O, the one outside of time who became subject to time. Another title in which we give Jesus. And historians will title him Jesus from the city of Nazareth. Now, for the first time, there is a concrete substance I can hold on to to know what wellness is. Now I'm able to hold on to life. Now it's not a theoretical, it's not just close my eyes and feel warm and cozy inside. Now it's something concrete. This is soul wellness. So what's been driving this entire series, what should drive us in our pursuit is Jesus being the centerpiece of us to be well. One thing I do know about you I, I know about myself. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person of integrity. Like, who I am on Sunday, I want to be that person on Monday. I don't want to be that person when, when I'm at home. Like, the, the person you see me, I want to be that same person when no one else is looking except my wife and kids. Maybe when no one else is looking. I want to be that same person, right? So you want to be a person of integrity as well. And this is what's kind of been driving this entire series is because we have a temptation to live two lives. We have a temptation to be one person on Sunday and a completely different person on Monday. There is this, this itch inside of us wanting to manage these two versions of ourselves. And honestly, many people, maybe you know some in your family, friends, circles, and things like that, who have left Christianity 
because they saw someone who was quote-unquote Christian live that double life, and they said, that, that's, that, that, that's Christianity? Like what, I, I saw what he did on Sunday, and then he does that on Tuesday at work with his money, with his spouse. I don't want Christianity. I know people like that. I'm sure you know people like that as well who have walked away. But it's so tempting. It's so tempting that we feel, because we feel like we're smarter than what we actually are. We feel like I can manage these two versions of myself. And we've been kind of looking back at, um, right, this has kind of been our driving message. The health of your soul determines if there will be two versions of yourself. The health of your soul determines if there will be two versions of yourself. And if we kind of look at our whole soul, soul wellness check, not in a theoretical soul wellness, no, no, like now going back to the physician of our soul, body, and spirit, Jesus, where we go back to that concrete reality. Soul wellness check. We talked about week one, uh, how to surrender. Right? For me to suppress my ego and pride and to surrender, to go all into him. Instead of me compartmentalizing parts of my life, to me to surrender. And we looked at some prayers in this ancient prayer book called the Egbeya, which we have some at the connection table, and how those prayers close that gap instead of us trying to live two lives, but for us to surrender, for us to be one, for us to be whole, for us to be an integer. That's what integrity comes from, right? An integer. And then last week we looked at how to monitor our heart. Like, why did I really send that text? Why did I really take that job? Why did I really say that comment? Why did I really go the other way? Why did I, like, for us to really check the motive, not just modify our behavior at a superficial level, but for me to look inside, why did I really behave this way? Why did I really say that? For us to look inside. So we, were, we looked at last week of how to monitor our hearts and ask those questions. Why did I do this for real? And for us to ask at a deeper level. Deeper level. But I want to share, like, our third exercise, which will give us optimal soul wellness, right? Before we get into our third exercise and our final exercise, let me kind of set this up. You and I love for people to praise us, right? Let's be honest. We kind of like it, right? <laughs> it's in us. It's in us. If, you know, if you need proof, you know, come over to my house and, you, and you'll see a six-year-old. Daddy, watch this. Okay, I watch. Daddy, watch this. I, it's the same thing, Ruthie. You don't watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Right? Every child. Daddy, watch this. Daddy, watch this. Daddy, watch this. It's the same thing. I know. I know what you just did. Okay, it's not like. But the kid, kids want it. They always want approval. They want affirmation. But it's not a child thing. It's a human thing. We want affirmation. We want. We're, we're, we're always looking for attention. We're always looking to fill in that appetite. Because the reality is. No appetite is really full. Like, I, I, it's, no, it's, no, it's not Ruth after the 45th time says, Daddy, you, you don't need to look anymore. It, you've already seen it. She's never going to say that. She's always looking for more. She's always looking for confirmation. She's looking for affirmation. So for us, no appetite is really full. Come on. I, one of my struggles, I'll be honest, I'm a glutton. Like, I love, like, after, like, a long day, I love sitting down and eating and watching Sports Center or PTI. Like, that's my thing. Like, I just love, I, I can't watch a sports show without food. So I have this issue. But even when I'm full, it's sick. It's actually kind of sick. I'm full, but I still want to eat. Like, it's, it's disgusting when I think about it. It sounds even worse when I say it out loud. That's one thing I know in my heart. It's another thing when I say it out loud. But it's an issue I have. Like, I, I just love to eat, right? This, I, you know, whatever. I gained 20 pounds in the past five years as a priest. That's pathetic. Just because I, I, it's an issue I have. Like, I just, I, I'm just always tempted to eat. Because no appetite is really full. No appetite is really full. I'm always looking for more, 
right? We're always looking for something. We're always trying to fill in something. So we become accustomed to it. We become dependent on it. We're trying to always look for more. We're trying to look for more. That house doesn't do it. I need another one. That car doesn't do it. I need another one. That relationship doesn't do it. I need another one. That career doesn't do it, right? We're always looking for more because no appetite is really full. And when I become enslaved to it, when I become enslaved to it and it just owns me, it, it, it makes me small. It makes me enslaved to it. it I, I'm, I'm, I'm imprisoned by it. I, I become enslaved to it. It's bad. It owns me. It owns me. Apply this to social media. Like, I'm always looking for affirmation. I'm always looking for confirmation. Only two likes. Only two whatever. Thumbs up or whatever. That, that, that's it. We're, look, we're always looking for more. We're always looking for affirmation. Somebody asked me the other day, are we an affirming church? I, I said, yeah, we affirm that Jesus is our Savior. But, but I, I knew where the conversation was going, and I was trying to be silly and funny, and then, but we talked about it more. Everyone is looking for affirmation. P put aside worldviews, everyone. Maybe that's related to you know, sexuality and different things. Everyone's looking for affirmation. They want to be affirmed. They want to know that they're accepted and loved, and they're looking for something to hold on to. But the reality is, whatever we cling to diminishes. Whatever we cling to, that we feel, if I just have this person, that thing, that whatever, we think that's, that's what's going to calm our appetite. We're always looking for more. This is why liturgically, in our 2,000-year-old church, we pray for us to be sufficient in everything. The buzzword is sufficiency. Make us to be sufficient in everything. And Lord, Lord we, you are the beneficent. For you have covered me, helped me, supported me. The church is trying to push us to have a muscle of contentment, sufficiency. Because we're always looking for more. We're trying to fill in that void. We're chasing. Sometimes chasing our tail. We think like that, that, that thing, that person, that whatever is going to quench that thirst. But let's get to the Bible, should we? So I want to share with you, let me just set up uh, like, you know, a, a background here before we get into a third one. I know I keep on stretching this out, but let me get some context here uh, from the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels we have of Jesus' life. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So well, we have now this person who's giving a really appealing and redundant message day in and day out. He's telling everyone, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. So I keep on saying the same dry message over and over again, copy and paste. He keeps on saying the exact same thing. But somehow, this has attracted the whole Judean countryside, right? It's not just a few people, not a dozen people, but literally the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, right? It wasn't next door. They had to, like, travel, get on their donkey and go to a place, to the countryside in the middle of nowhere to go see uh, St. John the Baptist. So he's telling them, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him, John, in the Jordan River. And this was St. John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So he, he's, he's kind of showing us this posture that there's someone after me. He's trying to tell, St. John is trying to tell him, there's someone after me. And stick with me, I promise you. What we're going to get to in a little bit of, of St. John's life, why I, I'm setting it up for us. I promise you, if you and I get this posture, if you and I understand the mindset and spirit set of what St. John's about to say, I promise you, this is going to help us live a more fulfilling and enriching life of giving. You know that, that thing inside of us of wanting more attention, of wanting to be in control? But if you and I capture the posture in which St. John's about to give us in a little bit, 
this will set you and I free at a level like no other. So stick with me. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, and we, well, that's another topic for another time of why, why, why St. John used that language, saying, look, look, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No more, like, no more transactional, you know, sacrifices needed. This is the one who's to restore and abolish sin in the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who, who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So he keeps on elevating and, and setting up, you know, he's kind of, he's setting it up this, this, this alley for Jesus to kind of dunk it, and he's kind of setting the path uh, to, to, to set up everyone for Jesus. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. So as John had a following. He had a posse as well, right? So the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, again, or now we're looking at, uh, at the Gospel of John, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples, who were disciples of John, heard him say this, they left John and went to Jesus. They left following John and they went to Jesus. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, now he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Here are some disciples saying, God, John, like you have this whole monopoly on baptisms. Like that's your bread and butter. That's your way of live life. I mean, that's your thing. And now that guy you kept on talking about, the one who's going to come after you, yeah, yeah, Jesus, now he's the one baptizing. Like on the other side, look over there on the other side of the Jordan River, he's baptizing now too. And people are starting to flock to him and not to you. What are you going to do about it? People are going to that church instead of your church. What are you going to do? Right? They're setting up this, this tension. They want to see how St. John's going to respond. And hear me out. And hear me out. If, you, if you've been kind of like, you know, sleeping, this is the time to wake up. What, how St. John responds to this, I'm telling you, if you and I capture this, this makes a huge difference toward our inner life and how we carry ourselves, how we even view ourselves. Here is how St. John responds to this. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You know what John is saying? He kind of basically diffused the tension. He diffused it. He flattened that out. He says, I got nothing. Anything I have, it's not really mine. A man receives nothing unless it has been given to him from above. Unless it's been given to him from heaven. I have nothing. What you have, be honest. Do you have it? Like, did you choose what family you were going to be raised in? Did you choose your body type, your personality? Did you choose that? If you kind of look, there's not, there's not that many variables. What you have has been given from above. What you have is not really yours. The people who've impacted you the most in your upbringing lived a life of giving because they realized, they understood this posture. What they have is not theirs. They understood that I'm just renting. I'm loaning this body. I'm just renting this career. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just borrowing this money. No, it's not really mine. They understood that posture. And that made all the difference of how they carried themselves. This posture prevents us from thinking, 
I, it's, it's all me. I, I'm the one successful. The, 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 this fights the temptation of, of climbing the corporate ladder because me. This fights this urge, that itch. This, this fights the itch of like, you know, I, I want control. And honestly, what causes so much anxiety and stress in our lives is we want control. We want control. We want to, we want to own it. And we feel it's all about us. But this posture sets me right. This posture is the ultimate posture in which the wellness advocate wants me to attain is to offer myself. This is why liturgically in this ancient church, we offer unto you, God, what is already yours. What we offer to you doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. This is why we pray and we say that language. We offer unto you what is yours. It doesn't belong to me. I offer it to you. This is the language you want. Thank you. We offer that to you. What you and I have is not really ours. This is why not just in orthodoxy, but it's definitely embedded in ancient Christianity, and of course other churches have taken it. We pray like this. What I have is not mine. I have nothing unless it has been given to me from above. You know what? Put your hands out like this. Put your hands out like this. And I want us to say the words of St. John. R say it with me. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. One more time. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Put your hands down, do whatever with your hands. What you and I have is nothing. It's not ours. It's his. We're renting it. Imagine if that's how we viewed our stuff, our things, our relationships, and even our own life. The value of a life is always measured by what was given away. We'll, we'll pass this for now. Our soul on this check. Surrender, monitor the heart, and then offer. But then stand with trembling. And I'm plagiarizing here from, uh, from liturgical prayers here, because we say, well, we offer, but we also want to stand with trembling. You know, stand is this, right? I'm standing. But when I stand with trembling, I realize it ain't about me. I tremble before the one who my life belongs to. I'm limited. He is unlimited. My life is in his hands. I offer and I stand. I carry myself and my career and my relationships and my personal lives and my finances and my resources. I stand and I tremble. I'm just borrowing this. All this is, in the words of St. Anthony, transitory. All this comes and goes. But pure happiness and, 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 and that genuine happiness in our soul, as St. Anthony says, requires me to detach and to live a life of this, not this. We're tempted. This is what America tells us. This is what our culture, this is what social media tells us. But real fulfillment, real soul wellness, as I offer, a man receives nothing unless it has been given to him from above. I want to wrap up this entire series with this beautiful verse from a first eyewitness and gospel writer, St. John. He wrote the Gospel of John and then three other like, letters to early Christians. He says this. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. I want my soul to prosper 
I want your soul to prosper. I want our kids to prosper, their soul to prosper. But it requires us to look in the inner life and go to the author of life, the one who outside of time became subject to time for me. Let this be our posture, to surrender, monitor our heart, and offer to him, and for us to stand with trembling before the one who is above all. Let us stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, that itch within us to own things, to say things are mine, Lord, everything we have comes from you and belongs to you. Because a man receives nothing and let unless it has been given to him from heaven. Lord, we pray that this series and this posture and all these exercises for our soul are not just texts, it's not just something like we just sit and hear, but for us to hear and to act according to your word, which is life-giving. Help us to embrace that tension within our hearts. We know that you want to work within us. We desire that intimate relationship with you. Help us to see you in a more intimate way. Help us to come to you with the spirit of vulnerability. For us to live for you, to monitor our hearts, to surrender, and for us to offer unto you what already belongs to you. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.